Welcome to Maritime Software Hub, the People Podcast. On this episode, I'm really excited to be speaking to Rory Proud, who's the one of the co-founders at Maritime Data AI. He was also previously the head of sales and one of the head of business development at Loisless Intelligence. And he's worked both in the UK and in the States. He's got a really, really interesting background and also I've really enjoyed talking to him about how he used to manage his teams, in particular as kind of the sales teams uh, running through the KPIs he used to set and how he used to kind of hire, sometimes deal with underperformance, that type of thing. So I personally learned a lot from this episode um, and I really hope you enjoy it too. Thanks a lot. Rory, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Callum, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Well, it's really great to sort of speak to you. I know we've been in touch for a, uh, a little while now on and off, so it's great to kind of get you on the podcast and hear about your journey and lots going on from what I can see and obviously uh, from what we discussed in, in recent months. So really excited to hear more about it. Good stuff. Yeah, so great. Fantastic. If you can introduce yourself, um, tell us a bit about Maritime Data um, and how you service your customers, that type of thing, and then we can dive in a bit deeper into it. Yeah, sure, of course. So Rory Crowd, uh, I've been working now in the mar- maritime data and analytics space for I think just over a decade, which makes me feel old. Uh, previously, I worked for an organization called Lloyd's List Intelligence, and I imagine listeners of this podcast might be familiar with that organization and what they do. And then as of August 2022, uh, myself and ex-colleague James Littlejohn set up Maritime Data AI. What is Maritime Data AI? We're ostensibly a digital broker for data and analytics services, but exclusively serving the maritime industry. The kind of general problem statement is we want to support organizations to source, evaluate, and purchase maritime data and analytics. I guess the genesis of the idea is obviously been working in this space for a while, right? And you would have seen this kind of considering the kind of vantage point that you guys have recruiting for all sorts of different maritime software companies. In fact, it might have been the motivation to do what you guys are doing. But in the last five to six years, I'd say there's been an explosion of data and analytics driven companies that are trying to serve the maritime industry as a whole. So it's anything from shipping companies to commodity traders, insurance organizations, banks, etc. And we found that while we were operating at Lloyd's that there was just significantly more choice now for users and buyers to consider uh, when it comes to the renewal of their incumbent services or uh, perhaps considering kind of what they should do next to support whatever initiatives or projects that they had which it did kind of one or two things. We boasted fantastic renewal rates at the time. And while I think James and I would love to pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, we built these great teams. We've hired such fantastic people, developed them in a way that really understand customers alongside with fantastic products. I think part of it at least was kind of like, it was apathy to a degree. And what I mean by that is that there was an explosion of different options now for buyers to consider but the groups who were making these decisions were no bigger. Like they weren't hiring additional procurement people to consider all these additional options or carving out time in their day to go and try and keep the finger on the pulse of all of these new products and services and, and what they can potentially do for their business. So there was often a lot of stagnation in the sense that customers were sticking to their existing subscriptions because it was just so much work to consider every potential alternative that it would always just roll on to next year. The can would get kicked down the hill. Yeah. And and it was incredibly hard for a lot of organizations to to sell into these same marketplaces, right? You've probably seen this. Like how many 
maritime compliance solutions now are there? How many weather routing and fuel optimization solutions are? By our count, there's north of 80. So yeah. from a buyer's perspective, it's it's a bit of a nightmare and it's a minefield. So we thought, well, hold on a minute. There must be a way to, to make this significantly easier. I remember at the time in my old position, we were considering different distribution channels, right? And I won't, I won't kind of name and shame, but there are the big data marketplaces that were attached to some reputable companies and big brands. And we got ourselves in there and we thought, right, this problem exists. People are probably gravitating towards places like this in order to distill their choices down to those that match their requirements or their budgetary restrictions, whatever it may be. And 18 months went by after setting up relationships with these marketplaces and unfortunately nothing happened. Now, the conclusion that we drew was that buying data and analytics isn't as simple as just going onto a marketplace, clicking a couple of filters, select by access API and off you go. There's still a lot far, there's a lot more to it, right? Like you still want to engage with the organization, understand kind of what happens in the weeds, what goes into the quality assurance processes, where they source their information from, et cetera, as well as get a good feel for how you're going to be looked after for a customer. And as well as that, I think the maritime solutions were just getting kind of caught in the noise to a certain extent. Like these big data marketplaces, they have thousands, if not tens of thousands of different offerings. Yeah. And we just didn't think that the likes of a ship owner or a charterer or a commodity trader would end up in those places to try and find AIS data or fixture data or something that's quite hyper-specific and potentially low value in comparison to some of the financial data sets that are now available for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pounds a year. So yeah. we thought a kind of dedicated version of that business, but taking on a business model that was more familiar to the shipping markets, like a broker would work. And so far, so good. I think it's great. I've been really excited about um, having you on the podcast and hearing more about um, the formation of the business. And even when I go on the website itself, I, I love the sort of, um, in a way, simplicity of it, just sort of kind of running through the different sort of forms on there with the type of data you might be interested in. And it just seems like a real kind of uh, a nice little hub to go to if you obviously want to sort of share your data or obviously obtain data. So I think it's a great idea and I really wish you both the best. So it's good to hear how you were set up. And I understand you, a little bit earlier in your career, you had a bit of an entrepreneurial kind of um, journey really earlier on. So do you want to talk us through that before you join Lloyd's? Well, yeah, and when I was, I would have been, what, 20 or 21 at the time, I actually dropped out of university to set up a company called RPV Technology uh, with a friend of mine, with the idea being that both of our experiences at university was that it was incredibly hard, weirdly enough, to find out kind of what was going in one place. It was separated over Facebook groups and university promoted materials and word of mouth from your kind of pals on campus. So we developed a mobile application with the idea being that you can have all of your social and university content in one place and you can share that information with other people. That was the general idea. We knew absolutely nothing about business. We knew nothing about sales, marketing, product development, whatever that may be. In fact, we spent 1,500 quid, which I think was all of the money that we had between us, plus about a 500 quid loan probably from one of our parents to build a mobile website and went round to basically every university in the country pitching our hearts out on the hope that someone would bankroll the development of this thing and yeah. we'd build an app and then from there we'd have a product and and we kind of get rolling the long story short right we ran out of money within about nine months i was working in a bar in the evening I was trying to do this thing in the day he was doing something very similar and then eventually we decided to call it quits 
I then ended up at Lloyd's about kind of three months later. And that was the start of uh, that part of my career. And he went on to do something very similar, but in a different industry. But the one lesson that I took out of that is that we tried to sell something that was an idea as opposed to a product. And the lesson I really kind of learned, and I'll ne- the mistake I'll never make again, is that if you have an idea, do it for free for someone to kind of bankroll a use case. And then when you have a use yeah. case, a referral, a testimonial, and a product, more importantly, then you can go and sell it to the wider market. I think we just got a bit yeah. in front of our skis too early. I guess you've kind of proved the concept. No, it's, it's excellent. And then um, the, sort of the main essence of this podcast is going to be talking around the sort of the role of kind of the head of sales, head of business development type of thing. And I know, um, obviously, since then, you've, you've moved on now to becoming a co-founder in your business and, and, and things. So talk us through those early days at, at Lloyd's. Obviously, you've kind of progressed through the, the ladder pretty quickly, spent time in the States and things. So what was it that you think that kind of helped you propel your career quite quickly from more of a hands-on individual sales role up to more of a team lead and strategic type of function? You know, I always cared, and I, I guess this might be the same answer that I give you later on when you ask me something along the lines of kind of what separates the top performers from everyone else. And I think that a simple answer like, do you care? Like, do you really not just care about the kind of usual stuff of, oh, I'm target orientated, I deliver results, etc. Do you care about the subject? Do you care about the market you're serving? Do you care about the customers you're engaging in? with and the sort of topics that you're kind of speaking about day in day out right because if it feels like play for you where it's work for others and then yeah. that kind of spares your natural curiosity to keep learning more about the subject and kind of demonstrate a genuine enthusiasm i always thought that that served me well i was cared i was always interested in kind of problem solving how we can improve things i was really bought into the company i kind of a pretty decent work ethic like i was always willing to go, go kind of go above and beyond i think especially when you're younger in your early days of your career, right? Like one of the variables that you can control is how much you put into it. And I know that the kind of popular LinkedIn rhetoric at the minute is, oh, no need to work smart. You can have work-life balance, like presenting all of these silver bullets for these are the keys to success. In reality, like especially in the first kind of five to 10 years, you've just got to graft. Like yeah. if you've been set a particular set of KPIs or requirements to be hit, do 20% more and like believe, and if you do that for long sustained periods of time, like you, you just will do well, right? Like, and it's the sort of answer that people don't want to hear because it's hard, it's draining, yeah. it's a bit monotonous, but in reality, you can control what you put into these things, which I'll, maybe I'll go on to elaborate about that in a, in, in a bit more detail. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That, that is, is never just about you, right? You have to get lucky. I, I know there was a, a certain period around maybe 2016 or 2017, there was a few really senior people that left the business to go on to do different things, either stay in the industry or, or get kind of more senior roles elsewhere that opened up managerial opportunities. And every time the, the opportunity presented itself, I threw my hat in the ring. Sometimes it got thrown straight back at me, but then eventually you get you get given a chance to manage a small team and from there you to put some numbers behind you, prove yourself as a as someone with the potential to take on more responsibility in time, and you kind of climb the ladder from there. Really, makes perfect sense. And a lot of our listeners and people we speak to, kind of on a day to day basis in the recruiting world, some people are quite interested about moving over to the states that capitalize on the markets out there and maybe um, start up businesses and things or teams over that way. So, how have you found that the kind of the key differences between kind of running a team in the UK perhaps compared to the US? 
No, the, the US and the UK are different places culturally, and I think that the US is more like a continent than it is a country yeah. in the sense that New York is so different to Texas as a place and so different to California, whereas the, the kind of UK is broadly similar, right? Bar perhaps the, the accent change from Birmingham to Leicester to Newcastle to Manchester. Uh, I'm trying to think what are the significant differences. Like, honestly, I think like it's broadly the same, to be completely honest. I think if anyone does have the opportunity to go to America, especially at a certain age, right, absolutely take the chance because it's less about how different perhaps the job is and the industry might be, but just the people that you're working with, be that from a customer perspective or the teams that you're working in or the teams perhaps that you're leading, people have different motivations, right? There are different things that people are striving for in the UK and US, I'd say. Was it an advantage at all, do you think, coming from the UK to be selling in, in the US or did it make no, no particular difference, do you think? It's, it's tough to say, right? Like, I'm not entirely sure. I, I, no. I, I don't think it is, to, to be completely honest. Like, I'm not sure if the accent played at all, but <laughs> no. I think that the, the fact that I came from HQ probably definitely did help. But I think, uh, I guess, one of the more challenging aspects of moving to the US, certainly the first three months before COVID hit, that was pretty challenging. But before that was the fact that I was kind of running like a satellite office. And I think that if satellite offices are, are left alone for too long, without a kind of proper connection back to the headquarters where ultimately a lot of the decisions do get made, right? They can grow detached from the business. So I think kind of reattaching them to HQ and getting them involved in decision-making and making sure that their feedback was heard well, was one of the, the things I had to do quite quickly when I arrived. What, what does that look on a more kind of granular sort of detail-wise? Was it more kind of consistent daily calls with the team in different offices or any particular structures you set up to try and bridge the gap? Yeah, I'd say it was more just having their voices heard to a certain extent. Like, you'd, yes, you can join kind of like all hands calls with 120 people on at a given time, right? And often the kind of squeaky wheels will get the grease where you'll have repeat offenders such as myself who have particularly loud voices in rooms like that that will make sure that their feedback is heard because you obviously need to, right? If you're serving a particular customer base, you want to prioritize the developments that will serve them over others like that is the game that you play inside large organizations so i think it was more just having especially the ambitious people right who, who wanted to crack on and they wanted to try and support the company to grow in the direction that they thought it should and just having that feedback heard connecting them with the product the marketing data services the management team as well getting people over from london and the uk in our case to interact with them and understand who they are as people and i think once they feel kind of more involved as a part of the larger organization, then a lot of those kind of fears and frustrations begin to dissipate. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. On our side, we have um, our kind of, for our executive search and more kind of retained work, we have our candidate mapping team are based in the Philippines. And um, yep. yeah, we speak to them every, pretty much two or three times a week in the morning and then the afternoons and on Slack all the time and definitely planning to kind of get them over to maybe meet up in Dubai or, or over, over to Europe would be great. So I think it's so important to, have that regular dialogue so they don't feel detached, as you say. And then now, obviously, in, in your current role at Mar Maritime Data, uh, how has the shift been? Obviously, going from quite a large, let's say, corporate, I'm not sure if you want to class them as corporate, but a larger company, it. to now, obviously, what you're building. What, what's the kind of, has it been a big shock to the system or is it like refreshing? <laughs> what's your, or both? Well, yeah, the, the, the biggest shock to the system is if you're not doing something, nothing gets done. <laughs> Whereas, I'd say for the last, what, five years or something. While I was still involved 
like in a lot of stuff on the kind of ground level um with customer discussions always kind of kept my finger on the pulse in that respect right like you've obviously got teams of people working for you and kind of doing doing the hard graft right like speaking with customers generating pipeline and producing numbers managing forecasts etc so i think that's the biggest change right that you are responsible for everything and you'll know this that you are not just the head of sales anymore you're the head of marketing you're the head of product development you're the head of raising money you're yeah hr finance legal team the whole shebang so but i kind of knew that coming into it and that was one of the biggest appeals for me that i think where i got frustrated is i love having an idea right coming up with kind of what i think is a creative way to solve a problem and obviously in a big company that requires a lot of sign-off they have particular things in the roadmap that they wish to prioritize and rightly so you can't just come up with random ideas when you feel like it and then try and action it even if there's an immediate benefit to doing so be it win a customer opportunity or generate revenue or increase your brand awareness whatever that may be right so i think while yes it's the biggest challenge in respect of you spread thin and look ultimately you do just have to work long hours right and again you'll know this from setting up your own company this is not nine to five anymore because you have to wear so many different hats but you can just go from coming up with an idea with someone or realizing there's an opportunity there to immediately actioning things which i absolutely love as you you might have seen right we started a newsletter a couple of weeks ago the second edition of which is coming out on thursday and I've had this idea for a while that we work with analytics companies, one of which focuses on using machine learning to predict the prices of commodities. Okay. Now they're not commodity or trade experts themselves, but they're data scientists. So they pull in loads of different data sources. The algorithm finds out a fancy way of kind of ranking the importance of those data sources and then produces a prediction, which they've seen fantastic results for. Now, I'd love to see the complete opposite approach to that, where you've got like a 30-year trade expert who knows the markets inside now, and maybe from kind of like gut feeling and discussion and just experience can try and make the same prediction on the direction, let's say, of the oil markets. And we're going to call it man versus machine. That okay. idea was spun up in about six hours and then agreed to on the same day. And that's just not the sort of thing that you can do in a, a kind of large organization yeah. that again, it has to have these things signed off and kind of agree to one in advance. So yeah, I'd say that's the biggest difference. Yeah. Good. And then also from a hiring point of view, if you, as you grow, do you, you meet someone you think could be a great addition to the team, you can make the decision there and then they need to go through too many layers of, of interviews and that type of thing. It's, it's really beneficial. Well, yeah, exactly. It's just decision-making in general, right? If you want to do something, you can do it in short. <laughs> but then the buck stops at you, as you're saying. <laughs> so if it's the wrong well, decision, it's your fault. But that's how you learn Oh, exactly. Yeah. You've just got to live with that. Okay, excellent. So let's move on to the main sort of subject of the, the call, which is talking about the role of head of sales. And this Great. can be, I guess this can translate into any kind of sales role. So obviously predominantly your background is more for the, the data sales cycle and subscriptions and also obviously on the software side as well, which is where a lot of our listeners come, come into. So from your point of view, how would you define the role of a head of sales or a head of business development? Um, there's a, probably a simple definition, right? You're you're in charge of growing the company sales. Like you've got, you're kind of beholden to the number at all costs. Like typically, you are set a target, and that target might be the growth of the ACV, for example, like the annual contract value in the business. Like a lot of software organisations and DAS businesses that are caught on themselves are heavily focused towards their subscription revenue and recurring revenue. 
and it'll be grow that number at an increment of X. So you are typically beholden to the number and then you have to set the plan, hire the people, build the team, like align resources with the rest of the divisions in order to hit that number as best you possibly can. So it's all going to well send growth, right? That's kind of the easy and simple answer. But I think the, the role of a head of sales is to grow, but in the right sense, like sustainable growth. And I think the bedrock of all of that is your people. And I don't think this is lost on people who have done these sorts of jobs before, right? But you have to train and develop your staff. So mm -hmm. the three kind of most important components of that being hiring, something you know obviously a lot about, development and retention. And it's easy to say, but incredibly difficult to, to do well in my experience, right? And even just little things like setting clear expectations of your team, like having the available resources and a kind of clear and obvious plan is to train those people against those expectations and then setting the kind of right set of motivations in place to drive the desired behaviors. And perhaps I'll touch more on that later on. And kind of wrapped all around that is the, the culture of the division that you're running, right? Something that we spoke about briefly when uh, I was in my last position, I think it's in 2020 or 2021, was when we were looking to hire for a couple of roles, I think you asked me at the time, you're like, well, what kind of attributes or traits or experiences are you looking for? And because I thought all of those things were particularly important, um, I used to look at kind of five to six key characteristics in people, especially when you're hiring for like more junior roles, right? Slightly different when you get into key account management territory. But if you're looking for uh, business development reps, let's say with sub three years experience or account managers as well, and even customer success, I think it's more important to hire the sort of characteristics that you want in a person, knowing that you've got the training and motivation piece kind of nailed down. If you can yeah. bring someone on board with the, the right set of traits, you should have the confidence in your ability and the infrastructure that you've set up to be able to train them accordingly and motivate them to, to hit whatever target that you set them, be that inputs or outputs. On the hiring point, when you were interviewing people, how were you assessing those traits? Did you have like a, a scaling system or any type of template? Was, was HR helping you at yeah, that time? Yeah, no, I just, I just made my own Excel template where I had five traits, which I think was something on the lines of kind of are they motivated right like hungry dogs run faster like it's an old school saying but I, I i see it's absolutely be true right if you go to bed in silk pajamas it's significantly harder to get up in the morning than not right i think some sort of famous boxing coach used to say that but i love that as a phrase accountability like can people take ownership of their own actions or are they just going to point the fingers the second something goes wrong i just found that over time to be one of the most important traits curiosity that sounds like a weird one right but just in my experience in like seeing kind of 10 years worth of salespeople come through the door the trait that was most common in all of them was almost an insatiable curiosity just a desire to know more and it, it almost kind of adds to the point i was saying earlier on about enjoying the subject and wanting to know more about your customers and the problem that you're solving etc to be curious will just drive you in directions that others won't and if there is a problem that needs to be solved then Curious people typically do better at doing so. Frugality, I think just doing more with less. Everyone can put their hand up and say, oh, we've not got this marketing brochure or PDF or marketing or delivering enough leads or the usual sort of excuses that you hear come out of salespeople. Some just, some not. Yeah. And a bias for action, which is look, just get, get on and do things, figure out how it goes. And then if it doesn't work, we can reassess and recalibrate, right? I would always say that if you do your absolute most 
to try and hit whatever kind of target or number that you've been set, and you will always have a place in this team. It doesn't matter what the end result is. If you give it your absolute all and you have a kind of appetite for improving yourself, you'll always have a place it. The okay. question was, how did I test against that? I've just built an Excel sheet where I'd have kind of three to four questions for each of those traits. And then based on the answers would then just rank them. And then at the end, that would generate a score per candidate. One, to keep it objective. Of course, you need to run these things by HR, right? To ensure that uh, you're being fair and just. And then for your own benefit as well, right? Because sometimes you, you come out of interviews just feeling a certain way. So it's always good to have a scoring system. Yeah, I agree. And we actually do a similar ranking system here, which is, yeah. has been very, very helpful. Um, and I guess another topic kind of relating to that is how do you kind of deal with, with underperformance in your team? How have you found, uh, I don't know, perhaps a bit of a sensitive subject, but like um, in general, what's been kind of your, your, your process of trying to sort of get people perhaps back on track a bit, not quite uh, achieving what you'd like them to achieve? Uh, it's, it's a big question, right? Because it, it really depends on context. Like, has someone been with the business for three months or have they been with the business for five years? I think that completely changes your approach. Like the seniority of the person, have their circumstances changed, have the business circumstances changed, that's kind of contributing to this drop in performance. So it really is contextual. I think in the early days, it's probably easier, right? Because in the first kind of six to 12 months in the job, like you should just be desperate to prove yourself by doing whatever's put in front of you. Like that is your safety net as a sales mm -hmm. rep, isn't it? Like whatever the KPIs have been in front of you are, objectives or plans, whatever that may be, do it in a 20%. And if you do that in a good organization, you will have a job and you will not be criticized of underperforming. Even if you don't hit targets, right? Usually kind of good managers and good heads of sales will value good quality and quantity of inputs yeah. um, over necessarily just pure output. If it's a more senior person and for whatever reason their performance drops off, first and foremost, like have a conversation with these people, right? Like these people are humans. Like there could be something going on in their lives. Uh, again, there could be a personal circumstance that's changed. Maybe their motivations are different. It could be time to move on. You can do that in, in an amicable way or it could be something that is quite easily corrected. Be it something that's just annoyed them, something was said to them, whatever that may be and just yeah. nip it in the bud as soon as you possibly can. But if all of those things fail, then eventually we used to go into kind of performance improvement plan structures, as I think many do, where you try and set a kind of series of achievable targets, again, usually input-based, right? That's the important piece, to not just set someone an arbitrary target to say, all right, well, you've got to deliver 100 grand within the next three months, otherwise it's out the door. It's going down to, right, what are they doing on a day-to-day -day basis that contributes towards that performance? Is it quantity? Is it quality? Usually it's some sort of combination of the two. Yeah, that's so similar to our world, to be honest with you. And that leads me nicely to our next question. So with, with regard to kind of some examples of KPIs or, or the metrics that you set, were there any particular that you had maybe on a day-to-day -day kind of, I'm sure there were lots, and any examples you can provide on any day-to-day -day kind of metrics you'd like your teams to be hitting in certain roles? I think it's different for, for account managers and new business, I'd say. In terms of account management inputs, I'll give you an example of one that we thought worked really well, which was, especially for key account management, which was the role that I did prior to going over to the States as the head of key accounts for Lloyds, was quarterly business reviews. And that every company I imagine structures that quarterly business review differently. And the amount of detail that you can get out of it will depend on 
your kind of relationship with the account and the seniority of the person or people that you're dealing with. But there we'd really just try and get a health check, which is, and again, it was significantly more detailed than this round, butchering it, no doubt, but essentially trying to figure out like how satisfied they are with their existing services. Is it solving the, the problem that they wish it to solve and to what degree um, in terms of usage? How is it being applied across the business? Oh, of course, there are other, other problems that you could potentially solve, things coming down the pipeline, risk mitigation strategies, like want to make sure if your stakeholders, for example, are leaving or moving on to a different job, who their replacement or counterpart is going to be to begin to build a relationship there. Are there new competitors that are being considered at an annual tender process, all of that sort of stuff, of which yeah. we would do religiously and put all of our time and effort into the information and the build-up that you would try and collect and then what you do post-meeting, right? That's the most important thing. I think a lot of people that work with multiple solution providers must get quite frustrated with the amount of meetings they have with account managers and then things ultimately aren't actioned, right? Especially when it comes to problems. If you've got a small niggling issue that's just left alone because it's deemed insignificant, that soon snowballs into an issue that could cause the, the cancellation of the particular service. So I'd say that was the most important input um, from an account management yeah. point of view. From an output perspective, we would look at things like total opportunity in a given account versus pipeline generated over a period of time. What I mean by that is you might have a metric like a total potential spend of an account. So let's say there are medium marine insurer based on the amount of products that they could potentially buy and based on the average order value of their kind of counterparts of what they're spending, you can generate a total number. Well, deduct what they spend at the minute and then there's your delta. For argument's okay. sake, let's call it $200,000. Like how much pipeline are we generating against those $200,000 and against which products, which obviously solve certain problems but particular personas and departments. So we'd be focused on that as opposed to your kind of arbitrary call times, emails, LinkedIn messages, yeah. et cetera. I think for account management, it's significantly more nuanced. And it's just a lot more qualitative is my, I guess my final point I'd say on that. Like metrics will give you an indication on a health check and usually a kind of an overview on the quantity of inputs that are happening, like how many touch points, et cetera. But it really is important to pick up on the little things like how satisfied people are with their services. What's the relationship between the account? Kind of, is there any serious or fatal risk coming down the pipeline, or at least fatal in the context of the maritime software renewal that are coming down the pipeline that we can potentially mitigate? New business is slightly different, right? I had a thought about this before this call that I think I would have answered something very different maybe six or seven years ago than I would today, where especially pre COVID, it was just significantly easier to get in touch with people, right? Like people are in the office five days a week, they'd usually have landlines. And again, yeah. you all know this, right? That are attached to email signatures. And yes, there's a whole new range of fancy tools that you can bolt onto LinkedIn and I don't know what they called Apollo and Easy and various other things that generate numbers and emails for you to get in touch with people. But I just think that the kind of classic cold call and cold email yields significantly less than it used to. And um, so where I would have said something along the lines of like how many people are we getting in touch with, now it's a bit more nuanced. And towards the end of my time at the last place, from a new business perspective, we would set plans on a monthly basis to execute and then track against the execution of those plans. So for example, it could be, right, let's pick our target market or target personas, add those people on LinkedIn, craft a particular content plan that we think resonates with them or describes the problem that we're trying to solve on their behalf. Use that content as a springboard to then engage 
not to ask something from them to say, can you jump on a demonstration or we think we can help you? Can you sign up to this free trial? But to get people's thoughts on this, like, are you barking up the wrong tree? Use referrals and customer testimonials as a framework for discussion to say that these are the problems we're solving. You look very similar in that respect. Not to say you're a kind of carbon copy of the businesses that we work with and support, but it'd be interesting to have a discussion around the topic and the problem itself to see if there's any area for mutual interest for cooperation. And then from there, set up your calls and meetings to do a bit of a deep dive on ascertaining whether they have a problem that you have a solution for. I can go into more detail about that if needs be. That's great. It really is. And I think you said about providing some value first before you can just ask for things. It's similar to us. And, and, and obviously you talk about things like your newsletter, that sort of stuff, I think is all part of that kind of outreach just to try and share your insights, what you're seeing day to day. So um, yeah, it makes, makes really good sense and uh, very helpful, really interesting. Certainly there's kind of KPIs and, and in this day-to-day sort of structure that you tend to um, or have it in previous roles sort of set and, and had. Just lastly, relating to that, your kind of previous teams, and you touched upon it earlier about saying if, if you are literally doing, focusing on doing 120% of your targets, that type of thing, you're the ones that are going to really overachieve. But was there anything else in particular you think set the kind of the high performers apart from the kind of the average performers in your previous teams that you can think of? Yeah, not to repeat myself, but like they cared. They really did care. I'd noted down earlier on some more colorful language than that. They gave us stuff. They just want, they wanted to do well and they weren't just there to cash a paycheck. They cared usually about the topic, the industry and the customers. I think that really is kind of jet fuel for, for motivation. I'd say secondly, right, like they figured it out. All the top performers just had a way of figuring it out. Like problem solvers, not seekers. And what I mean by seekers is, man, if you want to find the reason why someone isn't going to buy something from you, like you'll find it. And you can make a whole list of reasons why this particular deal isn't going to go ahead. They don't have the budget is the classic one, right? Or various, like you, you, there's the Rolodex of excuses that people have reeled out to me in the past and I'm sure you. But if you kind of take that attitude of, right, like we just need to figure this out and get this done, always always help people in good stead and i'd say the curiosity thing right like they were all super curious just wanted to learn more about the subject wanted to learn more about the customer they never just took first responses and answer there's always more of a deep dive why what does that mean what are the implications to you what are the historical pains financial personal etc and that unravels usually like the meats of the problem that you can then go in and solve. And I think this is maybe getting into it in a bit too much detail, right? People talk about solution selling, like it's only a solution if you're actually solving something. Like people will just bundle together a series of different products and based on a kind of hypothetical problem in their head that applies to everyone at exactly the same time, it's therefore a solution. When in reality, solution is there for a problem that someone is having in that given moment. And you won't figure that out without real in-depth questioning. No, it's very similar to us. <laughs> when we try and hire for people, we introduce ourselves. And uh, if there's no need there, then um, why work with us type of thing? But if we do dig a bit deep, understanding a bit more about their hiring processes or struggles they've had in the past, that type of thing, that's when we have more, hopefully add more value once you understand, better understanding of them. And as you say, caring about them more, more gen- generally about their business and their growth and things. So one last question relating to the, the head of BD and the head of sort of sales function. Were there any kind of major like recurring challenges that you kind of faced in, in that type of role? Uh, I think when you get when you jump into the more senior roles, right, you're just spinning a lot of plates and it's easy to lose focus. And I think that was probably the thing I suffered from the most, which was 
you want to be involved in everything, right? Like you're direct, you're dragged into conversations, sorry, with products and marketing and customer success and what's the strategy for the business over the next two, three years. And you think that you've got to start thinking about these kind of like big picture ideas and what's going to happen to the maritime data and analytics space in 10 years time and how do we position ourselves accordingly where in reality right you just got to focus on your team and your customers like team being the most important probably immediately followed by your existing customer base if you're managing an account management function and then after that how do you use the information gleaned from that existing customer base to generate net new within your kind of like your target market i think if you stick to that set your non-negotiables for your team in terms of like the inputs that you have to do on a week by week basis, right? Like whatever they are, make sure that they get done and done well, like quantity and quality being the two most important variables that you have to kind of manage and monitor as a head of sales, you'll do well. And yes, it's kind of exciting and it's fun and sometimes important to have those broader discussions and be aligned with your marketing team and obviously your product efforts and initiatives because ultimately you're the spearhead of distribution right you're the one that's got to go out uh, educate your team and motivate them to go and sell these things down the line but you really do have to just keep focus on the important stuff and do you think that part of that is kind of by leading by example did you find you had to but regularly kind of get back into the trenches and, and kind of do the sales yourself I've never left the trenches okay never left the trenches and i don't i think this is a mistake that people fall into that you, you start to see yourself more as a, a manager as opposed to a salesperson and you are 100% right and your your kind of first priority is to the people that work for you to kind of develop and train them and ensure they're the best they could possibly be and that they benefit from the sales that are coming in from a commission point of view and that they get all of the praise internally because it's often their hard work that's driving this stuff but I don't think you should ever take your finger off the pulse of customer conversations I think you should regularly drop in to be at QBRs or new business pitches or go on client meetings, go to conference events and exhibitions to ensure that you are there, not only to be seen, but to listen and to hear. Because I think the second you drop off that, like the feedback just doesn't mean as much. So yeah, never left the trenches. Probably never will. It's the funnest bit. No, great. I come later in, in recruitment as well. And the time is when I have perhaps eased back when our team is sort of scaled you just instantly notice it. If there's ever a kind of slight dip in revenue and that sort of thing, it's often because maybe we're spending too much time on that training or that sort of stuff. And then you kind of have to throw yourself back in. So I think the key thing is, as you say, just keep in there and regular contact and keep pushing. As you say, if you stop, other things, other wheels can slow down as well. Yeah. And look, you don't want to be a bottleneck, right? By any stretch of the imagination, you have to grant your kind of team the relative autonomy that they need to perform their role but it's just super important to keep on top of kind of like customer conversations, developments, trends, like what the competitive solutions are in the market, et cetera. And often you do that by speaking to people. Okay, cool. Last question. And my favorite question I ask people is um, just to get a bit to, to know our, our listeners and, and our guests a little bit more. So can you tell us either one thing or two things in particular that maybe most people won't know about you? Two things that people don't know about me. This is where you're supposed to have some sort of cool and sexy fact, isn't it? Like, <laughs> oh, I used to be in Superman. MI6. Exactly, yeah, yeah, MI6 or an undercover vigilante or something like this. Uh, I'm, sure. I'm, a, I'm a massive sports fan and support a range of kind of weird and obscure teams from Newcastle United, Dad to Geordie, to the Oklahoma City Thunder is my NBA basketball team. I don't know, second fact maybe, uh, 
Dropped out of university twice before eventually then going on to work for Lloyd's. In fact, the, set, well, the second time I dropped out of university was to set up the company that I mentioned on the start of the call. Uh, so then Lloyd's used to be owned by a company called Informa. And the job that I applied for was actually a graduate position. So I had to interview seven times for three different roles with, I think, four different hiring managers, or maybe even five, to literally fight and scrap my way in to try and prove that even though I didn't have a university degree, I was uh, I was perfectly capable of kind of doing the job. And then that, honestly, that kind of just put a chip on my shoulder a bit to yeah. think that, right, I've got to prove myself in that respect, which is never a bad thing. Reminds me of that program, Suits. I don't know if you've ever seen it. There, <laughs> lots yeah. of that I'm not sure it's that cleverest, but <laughs> take your point. The one guy gets it is the one without the Harvard degree and everything. It's interesting. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. I've personally learned a lot during this discussion. And certainly the way I approach kind of managing our team and our KPIs and things I'm going to take on board. Uh, I'm sure lots of our listeners uh, will do as well. And really excited to see the growth of maritime data. Any particular uh, way that perhaps any listeners can get in touch with you you prefer? Info maritimedata.ai uh, for any sort of general inquiries. But I would say follow myself, follow James Littlejohn and follow Maritime Data AI on LinkedIn. We're pretty active. Good. Excellent. Great. Well, I look forward to reading the next newsletter uh, and to speaking again soon. Good stuff. Cheers for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Maritime Software Hub. I really enjoyed speaking to Rory. He shared some great insights into running sales teams. And also, it's really exciting to see the development and kind of concept uh, of Maritime Data AI, which is a new business he's founded uh, with James. So I wish them both the best of luck. Thank you all for listening and please do feel free to reach out if you'd like to be featured on our podcast or if you have any questions. Thanks a lot.